You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Melvin Brown, Deputy Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM. Melvin shares why data sharing and collaboration among government agencies is crucial, how OPM is using and leveraging data and technology to enhance transparency and ensure accountability, how evolving threats impact the way federal agencies handle sensitive data and cybersecurity, and some of the challenges as technologies like AI become more integrated into cybersecurity practices. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And uh, we've been having a lot of great interviews over the past many episodes here at the uh, Gov Future podcast. And for those of you who are listening, please do share the Gov Future podcast with others. As you know, uh, we are really talking to some amazing thought leaders, innovators, folks who are really advancing the state of adopting transformative technology in the public sector. And well, we'd like other people to know about it. And we're sort of new to the space here that we've been podcasting since about mid-2023, but we're like dozens of episodes into it. I know we're getting a lot of great traction here. So share with your friends, make sure to subscribe and let other people know about it. And we really covered the full gamut from folks in federal, in defense, and civilian, and state, and even local government. We're talking to some great folks who are really uh, advancing the state of innovation and best practices to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector for our listeners and our GovFuture members. Exactly. So if you're not familiar with GovFuture and the GovFuture community, it's the fastest growing community of government innovators. You can learn more at GovFuture.com. And like Ron said, we really try to have conversations with the entire public sector ecosystem because there's so much that you can learn from everybody at all levels. So for today's podcast, we're so excited to have with us Melvin Brown II, who is Deputy Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM. Welcome, Melvin, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kathleen and Ron. Thank you for having me. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at OPM. So as as you stated, yes, I'm the deputy CIO at, at OPM, providing oversight for about 250 federal employees and about 300 contractors. Got an operating budget of about $300 million and and we provide HR IT support services for more than 8 million federal employees, retirees across the United States. Prior to that, I was a senior advisor to the CIO at the Department of Homeland Security uh, for all things the secretary. Uh, spent some time with the Small Business Administration, the Federal Aviation Administration, and spent eight years in the United States Marines. So glad to be here. Well, that's fantastic. And I think uh, a lot of people don't realize the size of HR and the employment base in the government. And I think that makes, you know, government with big, one of the biggest employers around the world and has to deal with so many of the sort of challenges, you know, that people might face in terms of everything from delivering services to, to providing all sorts of benefits and all sorts of technology across a very wide range. We, we learned about this at our uh, recent panel that we had featuring Melvin at our GovFuture Forum event in D.C. at George Mason University. And one of the interesting things we learned is, of course, just how broad that audience is in terms of generations, I think spans four generations of users from like the latest just entering the workforce to those who have 
are retiring and leaving the workforce. And I think that really imposes a lot of challenges. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that from the perspective of sort of data sharing and collaboration and just in terms of engaging that audience and keeping them sort of in the loop, as it will, with uh, this emerging and constantly evolving technology. Yeah, no, thanks, Ron. So I, I think the biggest thing, you know, foundationally that you have to do, you know, in order to pe- keep, keep people engaged and to get uh, what you want out of the, the data sharing is to establish clear policies and governance. And so developing a comprehensive data sharing policy that clearly outlines what data can be shared with whom and under what circumstances. Uh, and then implementing a governance framework to oversee the data sharing activities so that you ensure compliance with, you know, with the regulations and standards that you've set up. And then the next thing that you have to do is is kind of look at data classification and sensitivity. And so classifying that data based on the sensitivity levels of of who can be shared with openly, what requires permission, what must be kept confidential, you know, what must be encrypted and all of the other security measures and then fostering interoperability. And so uh, our ability to use interoperable systems and standards and formats so that we get seamless data interchanges is also a key amongst uh, federal agencies in order to be successful uh, as it relates to information sharing and 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 then adopting a common data standard and protocol so that we ensure compatibility and consistency. And then the last two things is just role-based access control. So making sure that only individuals have uh, access to the data necessary for their roles and then reviewing that. Uh, I think too often, you know, we create role-based access and permissions, and then we don't regularly update who has access. People leave, people come, people go, people change roles. And with that changing in roles, they should, um, uh, their their permissions should be updated. And then, you know, securing that data, you know, making sure that we've secured that data by uh, making sure that the data is encrypted, both in transit and at, and at rest. And then finally, you know, training and awareness you know, consistently training people, getting them up to speed on uh, the importance of data security and the proper uh, protocols for sharing information. And, you know, we talk about how the government has lots of data. I mean, I think many organizations at this point do, and it only continues to grow. But you have, you know, sensitive data as well when you're dealing with HR. So how do you see the evolving threat landscape impacting the way that federal agencies and maybe your agency specifically handle sensitive data and cybersecurity measures? No, thank you, Kathleen. That's a a challenging challenging subject at best. And so what we've learned is that there's an increased sophistication of cyber threats. And so as cyber threats become more sophisticated, agencies must continually update their cybersecurity measures and, and I call them, you guys have heard me say this before, there's no such thing as a cybersecurity solution. I think that we have to create countermeasures. Uh, it was something we learned in the military. We knew that the, the threat would always be there. We, we're not solving war. We're just developing different countermeasures to fend off and, against, and ward off against uh, the threat. And so um, defending against advanced persistent threats, ransomware and other sophisticated acts is something that we we have to do. And so we've been em- employing advanced threat detections and response capabilities uh, so that we can identify and mitigate the threats in real time. Um, the other thing that we've been focusing on is our zero trust security model. Um, and we, we've talked about that traditional perimeter-based security models. They're just no longer sufficient. And so CIOs and, and other uh, IT professionals, are, we're all increasingly adopting the zero trust approach where trust is never assumed. 
and verification is required for everybody, uh, whether inside or outside the network. Uh, and then using micro segmentation and least privileged access kind of helps to contain a potential breach so that we can um, isolate that breach or that incident. And then the other thing that um, we've done that we've started to see a rise in, and that's insider threat. And what we've discovered is it's not so much the person on the perimeter that can do the most damage, but it's the person that's inside your house because they know where all the jewelry is. They know where all the, the critical data is. And so whether intentional or unintentional, it poses the significant risk to an organization. And, and we in, in our CIO shop, we've been implementing monitoring and behavior analytic tools to detect unusual activities or potential uh, insider threats. Uh, establishing role plus uh, employee engagement training programs annually. So making um, making cybersecurity an annual mandated training is something that we've done. And then shift to cloud computing. Um, as we begin to shift the cloud, um, cloud presents some new challenges in terms of securing the data in the cloud. We've got to ensure that the, the service providers, that they're, they're adhering to the stringent security standards that we've set in place, uh, implementing cloud native security solutions, um, not trying to use our on-prem solutions to manage the security in the cloud, but then but adopting cloud native security solutions such that we can um, match like to like. And then integrating, as we talked earlier about AI and machine learning, we've got to leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning for threat detection and, and being able to do that real time. And if we automate that, the, the speed with which AI can anticipate a threat is, way, is going to be way faster than we could have ever done it as a human. And so we've been exploring all of those advanced technologies to augment, you know, our cybersecurity capabilities. Yeah, that's really important. I think obviously threats continue to evolve and uh, you know, the the challenge of managing and maintaining a, an increasingly growing amount of data that we're leveraging for so many different things, not just the transactional stuff that we've been doing for decades, but now we want to do AI, we want to do advanced analytics, we want to do all these things automation. And the challenge there is that we have to not only protect the data, on the one we have this like little tension, right? On the one hand, we need to protect that data, secure the data, make sure that it's not being sort of broadly, you know, accessed in ways it shouldn't. But on the other hand, we want to leverage that data. So we want to make it available. Like we want to make it available for all these new use cases. And it's this interesting little tension here. Uh, you know, between protect and use, because on the one hand, you want to gain opportunities from that data, but you don't want to have all these vulnerabilities. And I think we're all still trying to figure out how to manage that right threshold for every organization and their mission and the sensitivities to their data. Every organization is different. There will never be a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think I really like what you're saying about zero trust, which is a philosophy and the strategy for not just managing the outside, the perimeters, as it will, but also managing every single, single interaction. It's interesting how we sort of bring some of our you know, military and defense philosophy into our T, uh, cybersecurity philosophy as well. So uh, actually on that note, you know, sort of in light, you know, there have been some, some data breaches and of course, plenty of cyber attacks. U.S. government remains a very juicy target, you know, for for others. You know, how do you see federal agencies approaching like incident response, responding to these challenges, and what steps should be taken to improve agencies' resilience against future threats? So I, I think that everything starts with with the plan, and so I think that we develop um, a comprehensive incident response plan um, that details and outlines specific procedures and roles and responsibilities. That that would happen during a security incident, 
The plan should also look at the scenarios, including data breaches, ransomware attacks, and other threats. And so that when those things happen, we know exactly how to respond. Um, and we should always be updating the plan. I, and I've talked about this uh, on on other in other settings is that, you know, every night you check your your alarm, you set your alarm every night, and you lock your doors every night. You should be doing that with your cyber strategy and with your plan. You should be checking that on a regular basis. And then, you know, you've got to assemble a dedicated team to manage incident response. And, and these people have to have the right skills. Uh, and you need various people. You need uh, people from I.T. You need legal you need comps. You, you need a very um, diverse set of people to be on that incident response team because you're going to need all those skills. Skills and on that team, as I said earlier, you know, defining the roles of of the people that you want it, and then you've got to define the security levels or the severity levels. I mean, might say so that you can classify whether something is an incident or whether it's a breach, and and how big was it? Is it a major or a minor? Um, this classification will help guide you uh, to how fast you should respond and then what should be your next step. And then implement continuous monitoring. Um, this is where, I, as I said before, you should always be checking your cyber position, um, putting in and leveraging uh, security information and event management solutions so that you can centralize log data and facilitate early detection and, and detect the anomalies of people's specific activities. And then... Uh, automating that response. I mean, we should explore uh, the use of automation um, tools to accelerate incident response and automate that so that, as I said earlier, AI can quickly contain and mitigate that threat, reducing the overall risk of a security incident. And then the other thing that, last but not least, is something we did in the military is, you know, you pen test, you, you, you train, you practice. Uh, so you conduct third-party assessments, have somebody come in and poke holes in it. Let's see where we're, where we're vulnerable and where we can improve our security process. So those are just some basic things that we would want to do um, in order to you know, protect ourselves from data breaches and, and to create a, an environment where information and data can be shared. Yeah, it's important to hear that you're doing that because we always say regularly, like, this is not a set it and forget it. I think with most technology these days, right? It's not like, you know, you just go build a website for a restaurant, you put your menu up and then you never touch it again because prices don't change and all that. It's like, no, this is evolving and growing every day and changing every day. And so you need to make sure that you're staying on top of all of this because the criminals definitely are, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. So, and you talked about, you know, how you are looking at some emerging technologies like AI. So, uh, you know, as AI becomes more integrated into cybersecurity practices, what are some of the challenges that you see federal agencies face and maybe personally that you've seen that others should be aware of? Adversarial AI. Uh, as AI is used for threat detection, the adversaries are leveraging AI to create more sophisticated and targeted attacks. Uh, and so this can involve AI to generate phishing emails, evade detection, manipulate AI-based security systems. And so that's our number one problem right now is being able to determine whether we've got good AI or bad AI. That's that's going to be problematic going forward. Um, in the AI community, just a lack of understanding and expertise. AI is new. It's growing. And so there's a shortage of skilled professionals who, who really understand both AI and cybersecurity. And so federal agencies, you know, we already struggle. Uh, to recruit and retain the talent that we have. And so now 
you know, we're introducing AI into that equation. And so our ability to recruit and retain um, the talent with the necessary expertise to effectively implement and manage AI driven solutions uh, is going to be problematic. Um, data, privacy and bias. And so, you know, we know the foundation of AI is built on data. And, and so with that, you know, how do we how do we make sure that there's no biases in the data uh, such that the solution is not discriminatory against uh, anybody or making decisions that sway people one way or another? Um, ensuring that that privacy of that data is used is going to be it's going to be crucial. Um, so we've got to be able to make sure that we train um, the people that are doing that, that, that we're using clean data and that the, the data is is. Uh, is not, as I said earlier, not biased. So then there's an ethical consideration. Um, <laughs> we've got to use AI in a way that, that you know, we're, we're, there's some level of accountability to being responsible with it and, and that there's some transparency um, in looking at the impact of AI on individuals and communities going forward. So those are, those are just kind of my top three or four things that I think agencies should, should be thinking about. But the first one I think is, is something that we really, really should focus on. And that's going to be adversarial AI, because if we can't determine good AI from bad AI, it's just, this could get out of hand real fast. Yeah, I, I think that's top of mind for a lot of people right now. The things you're mentioning are like the hot button uh, topics. Now that uh, AI is basically, I don't want to use the word democratized, but it's just so cheap, so available and the power just of the systems, generative AI in particular, just continues to compound and enhance. We talk to people all the time, and there's this sense that the pace of innovation is accelerating. And in many ways, it actually is because of just how much these innovations can build on top of each other. But our ability to sort of put our arms around that technology and sort of rein it in or control it is actually much harder because people and processes tend to change at a much slower rate than technology. And uh, absolutely right. I think everything you're saying is top of mind for for every organization, and especially from where you're sitting. I'm sure these are our concerns, and we hope that part of what we could do here is sort of at least cross pollinate the thinking about what's happening, share the the challenge, and engage industry honestly in helping to solve some of these challenges. This is sort of a a group, uh, you know, challenge that we all need to share and pitch in, and and be focused on the mission not just uh, sort of short-term rewards. We tell this to industry all the time, focus on solving these these, these bigger problems and, and the mission. So that's really, really key to what you're uh, saying here. And I guess sort of that, that sort of brings in this sort of next question here, which is, you know, from your perspective in your office and your agency, you know, how are, and we talked about some of these issues of transparency and accountability and the challenges of AI with, with data, whenever we use machines to help automate decisions and those decisions are based on data and the data has plenty of issues, biases, inaccuracies, all sorts of challenges, we run into all these problems. So maybe from your perspective, you know, how are you using data and technology to help enhance transparency ensure accountability and, and solve some of these uh, greater problems? Well, so as LPM, as we stated earlier, you know, we are the largest employer in the United States. And, you know, we provide HR data and systems for, you know, more than 8 million federal employees and retirees. And so with that, you know, we, we have a massive amount of data. And so that our chief data officer created a data strategy and they, they created these HR dashboards. Um, and what they were able to do was allow federal agencies more insight into the trends of their agency 
in a way that they haven't seen before. So what are their DEIA metrics? What are the demographic makes up? What are their attrition rates looks like? What are the skills look like um, across across the federal government? Well, that's that's huge because now agencies can see where the skill gaps are. Where, what does the retirement population look like and where do we stand as it relates to early career talent? And so that that helps our recruiting. That helps us to target um, opportunities for uh, for making up skills that we don't have. Uh, and that's that's been a game changer for us. And then the last thing that we've done was we we created a standard business intelligence tool for everybody. So we we settled on one business intelligence tool. And so now we've extended um, the ability for people to be able to make data driven decisions down to the employee level by doing that. So those are just some of the ways that we're doing that. And then because we've created that dashboard, now agencies can help us clean up and validate the, the inaccuracies of the data, thus making um, the data more effective. Uh, one of the strategies that we've talked about is you can't wait for perfect data to make a decision. You make the decision with the best data that you have and you clean it up over time um, because it's it's never going to be perfect. But you know, you got to use the intelligence that you have at the moment to make the decisions that you have. Yeah, we know a lot. And data is never going to be perfect. And as we continue to get more data, it's only going to, you know, you're going to have data from multiple different sources, which data is the newest data. There's a lot of different different things that come into play. And we actually, uh, you know, talk about that a lot too, especially with the government and your, uh, you know, the technology that you can use versus the demographic that you need to serve. And you know, you have four generations that you're dealing with. So that is a lot different than maybe industry that has one or two generations and kind of, you know, makes people conform to using that technology. And there's multiple options where with you, you really do need to service everybody and you need to service it in the way that they can handle it. I think at our GovFuture Forum event, you talked about a fax machine. And I know that many government agencies still have them, while industry doesn't. And you, and so sometimes people look at that and go, "Oh, wow! Well, the government's so behind." And it's like, well, the government has different needs, right? And so, and and different challenges that industry doesn't always necessarily have. So you need to be weighing that always. So it's it's always interesting to have these conversations. When we wrap up our podcasts with our interviews, we always ask the same question because we get such varied responses because our guests are able to bring in their unique backgrounds and perspectives. So for this final question, what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? Wow. Uh, thanks, Kathleen. And, and let me go back to the, the the mission question, if I may, for a second. Uh, yes, we we have fax machines, uh, we have call centers, and we have chatbots. And, and so that mix allows us to be able to serve uh, people that are above 60, between 40 and 50, and the people that are in their 20s. It just, it just varies based on our level of service and who we're trying to target. But where do I see the future? Where there's there's a lot of things I can talk about. I'll, I'll talk about just a few, though. And, and one is artificial intelligence and machine learning. AI is going to play a pivotal role in, in automating routine tasks, enhancing decision making and improving the efficiency of government services. And so this includes just even applications uh, in predictive analytics, natural language processing, image recognition and better insight into our service deliveries, um, data analytics and big data. Governments will continue to increase or leverage our big data uh, analytics to devise actionable insight for large data sets. Uh, this is going to allow us to 
inform our policy decisions a little differently and and enhance our public service and improve our overall governance, I believe. And then this this other piece that's growing uh, on me, and it's it's a scary thing, but it's the Internet of Things for a smart government. Um, The Internet of Things devices and sensors, we believe, are going to be deployed to collect real-time data from you know, smart city initiatives, our infrastructure, the environmental monitoring. Um, this data is also going to enhance our decision making and improve the quality of our public services and the policies that we create. And then cloud computing for scalability and flexibility. Cloud is 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 and will continue to be the foundation for the technology for government operations going forward. It allows us to scale and be flexible in a way that, you know, we can't do in our on-premise environment. And it's going to give us a more cost-effective way to manage and deliver our services. And I think that we're going to start to see more multi-cloud and hybrid cloud environments um, in, 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 a, in a lot of our government agencies. And then cybersecurity advancements. Um, the cyber threat has continued to evolve, and I think the government's going to have to continue to invest in advanced cybersecurity measures, uh, including AI um, for threat detection, uh, encryption technologies, um, proactive risk management strategies, and and sensitivity data and critical infrastructure are going to be key. And then this this controversial topic around remote remote work, um, the, the the shift toward remote work is is likely to continue, and government is going to have to continue to invest in technology that support uh, flexible work arrangements. Not this, which is going to include collaboration tools, uh, virtual private networks, and secure communication platforms. And then lastly, uh, just digital identity and authentication. Um, we're going to continue to focus on enhancing digital identity solutions so that we can improve security and streamline our online services. Um, this will include biometrics, two-factor, and and secure identity verification methods, uh, just to name a few. So that's that's kind of my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's kind of where I see it going, and um, be, hopefully five years from now, we'll we'll see some of this come to fruition. Okay. Well, we're keeping an eye on what you guys are doing. I think this is fantastic. And and I think this is really interesting. The whole thing kind of puts a lot of stuff in perspective, even though this is specifically from your perspective and OPM, a lot of these topics are top of mind, as mentioned, for a lot of folks in a lot of different agencies. I know that uh, our podcast, we have listeners from around the world, even folks who are involved not only in federal and state and local governments, but some international governments. They look to others for examples and for uh, you know, they may not be operating at the at the same scale. They may not be addressing perhaps exactly the same challenges, but I think a lot of people have the same sort of needs. And I really like a lot of what you have to say about managing risk, the challenges around adopting and the use of advanced technologies like AI and analytics and automation. And also, uh, you, you met, it's kind of like this idea that we're talking about here, which is some parts of our, uh, you know, the community that we serve are interested in more things like self-service. And, uh, you know, things that where they are in control and they're more technologically savvy. But at the same time, we have portions of our uh, uh, user base that are in our our ecosystem that are more full service and they want to use traditional approaches. And we want to be able to handle that whole range from self-service to full service while at the same time making efficient use of technology because the technology is here and at the same time reducing our risk. So a lot of challenges, a lot of uh, things pushing in a lot of different ways, but I think this has really been fantastic. You've, you've provided a lot of great insights. I hope a lot of people listen to this podcast and share the podcast and they can internalize what they have to say. So you know, thank you, Melvin, so much for being on the Gov Future uh, podcast and, and sharing your insights with our community. 
Thank you, Ron and Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. It's always wonderful to have a discussion with you. And for our listeners, we've got great resources if you're looking to get additional insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well. We encourage you to go to govfuture.com slash resources to check out all the resources we have available, tailored just for you, our GovFuture listeners. If you haven't done so already, become a GovFuture member to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with different government agencies, exclusive access to events, resources, and a platform to have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. To learn more and sign up, go to govfuture.com slash join. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and also rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.